because we're not telling ourselves the truth. Um, because for the Palestinians, the Nakba is pivotal. That's the ground zero of the whole situation. Welcome to the Miko Peled podcast. Okay, Helbit uh, Arie, thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview with me. Thank um, you. Like I said to you earlier, I'm actually very surprised we haven't met yet because we work in similar circles and we have very similar background, actually. Um, I missed your lecture here in Washington, D.C., unfortunately, but I caught it on YouTube. And um, it's an excellent lecture. And, and what I saw was that um, we actually have very similar background in that, you know, coming from a Zionist very ultra Zionist even background, being completely ignorant of the Nakba, being raised with this uh, notion that, well, and perhaps mistakes were made, maybe atrocity here or there, but generally speaking, we're on the right side. We, are, we, we maintain the moral high ground. We are good people. We deserve to be here and so forth. And then also you even spoke about your kind of hesitancy to serve in the military, but serving anyway in some capacity or another. And I had this very similar experience, though I'm older than you. Talk about Zohrot as an organization and even the name, because the name is unique. Yes. Um, so Zohrot in Hebrew means uh, remembering. And that's the female form of, of remembrance. Um, it's an organization that is dedicated to commemorating the Palestinian Nakba, the expulsion of most of the Palestinian people from Palestine in 1948 and all the atrocities ever since, uh, and to advocating for Palestinian right to return. Why is it using the female form? We are using the female form uh, because we present some alternative uh, to the mainstream Israeli form of remembrance. And I think um, remembrance and commemoration, you know that Miko is very important. Well, of course, in um, Jewish tradition, our most important holiday is called uh, the day of remembering Rosh Hashanah. Um, but also in Israeli tradition, we have all those remembrance day, remembering the Holocaust and also the Remembrance Day to the uh, fallen soldiers uh, that are always a really big deal in Israel and you can't avoid them. Uh, but then at the same time, we completely forget what's directly beneath our feet. And we just talked about that growing up without knowing anything. Um, and that um, sort of memory that we are taught in schools is very masculine, very much related to, to the army. Uh, and to uh, heroism in battle and so forth. And we present a different kind uh, of memory. And this is why we related to the female form, um, to something that is, is more inclusive. Uh, less patriarchy and, also, I think, right? Um, less yes, less patriarchal, uh, more inclusive and allows you to empathize to to remember the Palestinian plights and the Palestinian lives that were here and to grieve them and, and to hope and wish and fight uh, for their renewal and their return. So it's an inclusive part of memory. We don't say 
forget your dead Israelis, but just remember all of it, all of our history. And there's also something about listening and believing the victims, right? Absolutely. Much of the work of, uh, of Zohrot. So I think uh, Zohrot was established in, in 2002, which is uh, around, as I said, the time that many dreams here or illusions were shattered. Um, and at the time, you probably remember that during the 90s, it was very fashionable um, to have dialogue groups and, um, you know, and, and, and um, peace circles. Um, and that was the time that some Israeli activists, not many, but some, um, started to understand that those efforts, however uh, well-intentioned, are leading nowhere because we're not telling ourselves the truth. Um, because for the Palestinians, the Nakba is pivotal. That's the ground zero of the whole situation. This is where the ethnic cleansing happened and the right to return is an aligned right uh, that they still insist on. And for, and for Israelis, we don't recognize these rights and we don't recognize that the Nakba even happened. We don't recognize it as a, a, a disaster, as, as a wound that is still open. Um, and we basically don't believe the victims. And I was going to ask we you, not, you. We do not. We do not listen to the victims, and no. we don't. Uh, and we don't even see it as as a wrong at all. Right. Uh, and as long as this is the situation, we can't move forward, and we can't even imagine a solution because we don't understand the problem. Yes, I was going um, to ask you, you when you mentioned earlier that you began hearing the stories of Palestinian Nakba when you were at university. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction? Because I remember my the first time I heard those and, and the sense of shock and there were other, and it was actually in a dialogue group uh, here in the United States. And there were other, there were American Jews. I was the only Israeli, but there were American Jews. And many of them just didn't believe the stories. They said it was a lie. There was all anti-Semitism, you know, so that was a very, very common reaction to the mm -hmm. stories from the victims themselves, because these were people who were actually either experienced firsthand or saw their parents experience in Nakba. Um, but the, the, the reaction was very, very strange among most Jewish people. What was your reaction? I think it never occurred to me not to believe. Yeah. Um, you know, my classmate who was uh, telling me that, that uh, his family was um, expelled from uh, El Ajun uh, and ended up in Umar Fahem. Um, I, I did believe uh, this and I said, well, you know, but now we are both uh, citizens and there should be equal rights. And uh, I, I was very naive at the time. And I'm remembering uh, one other occurrences and I uh, apologize in advance that this is a hummus story. It's very cliche to sit over hummus, but that, that was already in Beijing when I was in China and after some six months in um, a lot of uh, quite remote places in China, uh, I arrived in Beijing and I was very much missing more familiar food and I found an uh, Arabic restaurant. In Beijing. Uh, in you, Beijing. Ate hummus, you ate hummus in Beijing, that is a story. I did, yeah, and it was, and it was great. And um, I asked the waitress, uh, where is the chef from? And she said, Palestine. And I was, wow, um, 
and and I told her I I am from there um, as well. And she called the chef, and he was a refugee from Safed, mm. uh, who was born and grew up in uh, Lebanon, and somehow ended up in, uh, in uh, working in China and brought his family <laughs> to China. And, and we started talking in this very broken uh, English and Arabic and, and Chinese, it was a whole mess. Um, and he asked me about Safad. He, he told me, uh, describe Safad and, and the El Jalil, the, the Galilee to me. Um, and, and I tried and he was like, I, I so wish I could go back there. Um, and I never heard someone talking like that about their refugehood um, before. And so that's really not the story. And, and we, uh, you know, we parted ways and I was uh, to board a very long train the same evening. So he gave me hummus uh, for the way and absolutely refused payment. It was so warm and I was quite shocked because I thought he would hate me. I didn't want to talk to him at first. And then I came back to the hostel when uh, I was staying. I was backpacking uh, at the time and quite broke. And there were uh, a whole bunch of Israelis there. And I was happy to see them because I didn't speak Hebrew for a long time. And it was always nice to uh, meet your country people. And I tried, uh, started talking to them. And I told them about that encounter with the Palestinian, which really moved me. And their reaction was, oh, he probably poisoned that hummus. Oh, yeah. Oh, terrible. Oh. And yeah, and this is, I think this is one of the times that, you know, my eyes started to open. I think it was in 2002 uh, that there was such a gap between uh, this man who was without hatred despite born, being born a refugee and not allowed to return and, and spending all his life in, in exile. And between those people who live in such unfounded fear yeah, um, and, and this fantasy of, of revenge. And, um, yeah. So it really made me think a lot. I, I came back to this moment yeah. many, many times. You know, when you write, um, when you write, when you, when you write a book, when you write your book, that is a great title. Eating Homos in Beijing. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> great, I think it's a great title for the book. And also, and it reminds me, and you know, it's really interesting how the similarities. You know, I was in Japan, I lived in Japan. I had a whole life of martial arts. And so I lived in Japan and there were many Israelis there too. And we lived in this house with Israelis. And one night, one of the guys was an officer in the Naval Commando. Oh. And he told stories about how they would, um, and it's in my book, it's in the General Sun. It was shocking. I was not even active politically at all, but he described how they would stop the, fisher, the, the fishermen in their boats, made them jump in the water, blow up the ship, and then make them count to 100, and then 100 again, and, until they all drowned. And this was just for, you know, to show them okay. who's, and this is, this is a long time ago. This is, this is a very long time ago. Many, most Israelis, even Israelis who are more, you know, progressive don't know that these things took place that, you know, and we were just sitting there in Tokyo and, you know, chatting and, and he was talking about it like it was nothing. He wasn't feeling regret or thought it was horrifying, but just letting innocent people drown and watching yeah. them. 
you know. It was just an, an amusing story for him. Yeah, just a story, uh, you know, story from his yes. military, good old military days. It's, um, it's interesting. We were both in the Orient. We both had uh, met Israelis there and the, the shock, you know, of, of, the, of the Israeli reaction to these things. You know, I want to I wanna ask you, um, like I said, I was listening to your speech at the, uh, at the Palestine Center in Washington, D.C., which, which I really recommend for people to find on YouTube. It's an excellent speech. And you talked about um, the destruction that took place in Palestine by the Zionists and the way archaeologists view that in comparison to other layers of history in Palestine. Can you talk about that? That was incredible. Yes, so I'm not, I'm not an archaeologist and I'm not uh, in, by no means an expert on this, but this is what I heard from an archaeologist that uh, is researching actually not this period, but uh, more ancient periods. But he said, when you do excavations uh, in Palestine, um, what the, this is the most complete destruction of all the layers, and of course, there are many, many layers because this country has been inhabit uh, inhabited for thousands of years. Um, so there is the, you know, the, the late uh, Arab period and the early Arab period and the Crusades and the, and the Romans. Um, and this is the most complete destruction that you see in excavations, that a whole civilization that was just destroyed. And I want to say about that, that the fact that uh, Palestinian and Palestinian culture and civilization survived despite all that uh, is just so admirable. And there's so much to learn from Palestinian resistance and you cannot but admire that. And I really wish people would listen more to Palestinians, to survivors of the Nakba, uh, one of the most important uh, activities that Zohot does is uh, to take um, testimonies from survivors of the Nakba. And we did much of it and put it on tape and you can see uh, all of them, most of them on YouTube and we continue to publish uh, new ones, uh, unfortunately, Nakba survivors are dying out. Uh, most of them who are still with us are very old by now. And now we, are, we try to take testimonies from uh, second and third generation. But this word of mouth, this believing the victims, hearing their stories, the stories about how their lives looked like before the Nakba. And you can try to imagine what could have been here, uh, how this country could have been, how this society could have been if it wasn't for these terrible crimes of ethnic cleansing. Um, and you hear the separation of families, uh, the, the, the death, the rape, the, um, the lost property, the lost lives. Um, we just, uh, a month ago, we screened the testimony of a um, woman from, also from Safad, who recently, uh, unfortunately, passed away, and we talked with her daughter, um, and she was separated from all of her, all of her family, uh, from her husband, she was left alone with children, 
Um, and she searched for her husband for years until she found him and he and they managed to reunite, but she reunited with her sisters only 50 years later. She was able before the war in Syria wow. to, to go to Syria and reunite with them. So really, really heartbreaking stories uh, of, of loss and survival and pain that we need to listen to. Uh, you know, we are so used to, to listen to our own pains. Yes, and, yes. And, and of course, uh, most many Israelis here also have stories of refugehood. Yes, um, yes. But this story doesn't negate other. If you listen to another person's pain, it doesn't negate your own pain uh, or your own trauma. It just, I mean, if you are an inheritant of, of a generational trauma, like like I am, for example, um, I think it just reinforces the need to open your heart to other people's trauma and also to take responsibility for your part in the disposition of, um, of others. Um, and the vision that we present is just a different vision of uh, inclusiveness, of living in peace, in, of diversity, of refugees return and rebuilding their lives. And what I think we try to present to Israelis is, is that you can be part of it. Um, you will need to change a lot. We all will need to change to give up uh, most of our privileges uh, and our superiority and, and the myths that we grew up on, but we will get in return a society that is open and inclusive and allows everyone uh, to flourish. Yeah. And, so and, actually... we get, and we get in return a, a, a truth, a truthful living. And I think that's a lot. That's yeah, a lot. Yeah. And, and this is what we're trying to teach, not just uh, commemorate the past, but hold a vision for, the, for a future that is just and peaceful. Yeah. And again, I think Zuhrat provides a, an incredible vision. I think the vision, the return vision, the, the work that the Zuhrat does, I mean, everything, like I said, from the name to the people that are part of the organization are providing such a positive and important uh, a resource, but also a vision. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, I remember this myself, or I remind myself, if we sat in a room somewhere and we were discussing the fall of South African apartheid in 1988 or 1989, and somebody would say that by 1994, Nelson Mandela would be president of a free South Africa, people would laugh at us. Exactly. So I always have that in mind, you know, imagine, it, because when things change, they change very quickly. I am a firm believer that BDS is the tool that's gonna get us there, but I'm sure there are, other, there are other things. It's not the only one. And it's great to have a vision and it's great to have the, the vision that Zuhrot provides, all of it, uh, all the different aspects of it. And um, again, I wanna thank you for the incredible work that you do in leading this organization. And um, thank you for your time. Um, is there anything else that you wanna say or add before we, before we close? Um, I would just thank you for the incredible work that you do and um, all the fascinating conversations and resources uh, you provide and your books. 
Um, and let's keep doing the work. We have to do that. It's our responsibility, right? Yes. So Rachel Betari, Executive Director of Zohrat. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.